Amen. You live in a space that's more than your home or office or school. It's a space made up of the people around you, the ideas you believe in, the faith you claim, even the questions you ask. That space can be like a shelter, but what if it feels more like a prison that's closing in on you? Maybe you feel like you're surrounded by cynicism. You want to believe, but you're not sure if that's okay. Isn't it foolish to believe in love when there is so much anger closing in around us? Foolish to believe in God when He seems so absent. Even crazier to believe that God arrived on earth? Is believing in a resurrection just too difficult when doubt rushes in so heavy and strong? Or maybe you feel like all the belief around you is the problem. You've done your best to trust God, but there are questions you're afraid to ask. You're not sure if there's room for them. It's not clear your faith can handle them. Is doubting okay? Well, good morning, Crossroads. How's everybody doing today? Are you feeling good? Are you glad you came to church today? All right, excellent. We also want to give a special welcome to our friends at our Hayward campus. And for those of you at the 1130 service, I know maybe you didn't come to church expecting today to see all of this on video. But again, we, we want to remind you that, you know, sometimes we're called to sacrifice what we like for the greater good for what we love. So, Now that we have that, let me ask you a question. If you're here today and you consider yourself a follower of Christ, do you remember when it was new? Do you remember that at all? What it was like for me, it was the ninth grade. And I got to ask you, was it easy to believe then or was it a little bit more challenging? For me, It was not easy at all. You see, I came from a family that did not go to church. I was not raised going to church. I was a very scientific mind. I was skeptical by nature. And even once I had been convinced that it was all empirically true, that God was real, that Jesus was who he said he was, and that he did the things that he said, and that we could have eternal life by putting our faith in him, even once I had believed that, I sort of felt unqualified to be a person of faith. It just didn't really feel like it was my nature. In your life, has it been your experience that practically everyone around you seems like they have more faith than you do? Does it feel that way sometimes? Obviously not those you know that would consider themselves agnostic or atheist, but among your church friends, are you sure that you are the spiritual shorty on a team full of faith giants? Is that you? Is that you? I know I've felt that way so much in my life. And so today, we're going to look at a prayer in our one prayer series that is neither long nor eloquent. Its value doesn't consist in the number of words or their careful presentation, but rather in their fierce desperation, motivated by the acknowledgement of need. Today's prayer is very raw. So let's read. Now, all of this scripture is not on your outline, but it will be up on the screen. We're in Mark chapter 9. And it starts, When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. 
As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus... It immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into a fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe! Help me overcome my unbelief! When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Now let's unpack this scripture before we look at the prayer specifically, because there are a few things going on. So first of all, Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, have just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. What happened was he took them up on that mountain to pray, They met Moses and Elijah there. Then they heard the voice of God speak from a cloud, and Jesus was miraculously transformed. His clothing is now glowing, dazzling, brilliant white, even brighter than that time on Friends when Ross got his teeth overbleached. (laughs) So they come down from the mountain, and the people are thrilled, and they run to see Jesus, but he's already noticed that there's a commotion going on. His nine disciples who remain down at the foot of the mountain are now arguing with local teachers of the law. So the disciples and the rabbis are kind of going at it, rah, 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 back and forth. Well, it turns out they're arguing because no one can cast out an impure spirit from this man's son. The teachers of the law are likely calling the disciples frauds at this point. They're probably saying, you guys are fake. This, this Jesus that you say you follow, he's not the real deal. You don't have any power. You can't cast out this demon. Well, the disciples are arguing right back. Well, you're supposed to be the teachers of the law. You're supposed to be Israel's leaders. And yet, you can't cast out this demon. So the arguing continues. And the man turns and he explains the boy's situation to Jesus. Now, let's look at Jesus' response. This is in verse 19. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, at first blush, when you hear Jesus' response, it almost seems a little bit cold, a little calloused. Like he's saying, oh, here we go. 
you people with no faith. But I think what's really happening here is that Jesus is creating a teachable moment. Because I don't think he's just accusing the father of unbelief, but rather everyone involved in the situation. He doesn't say to the father, you unbelieving guy. He doesn't say, you unbelieving, doubting father of the son. But he says, you unbelieving generation. How long I got to put up with you? And so he says, bring the boy to me. Now, does the man believe that Jesus can heal his son? That's a good question, but let's not jump to conclusions. Because before we think this guy is just a doubter, let us remember. He did watch his son suffer for many years. He did bring his son before Jesus. And he probably is a little bit disappointed that Jesus' followers could not cast out the demon. I think this man is speaking through the tattered veil of his despondence. He's saying, Jesus, I'm exhausted. Please take pity if you can. And of course, what's Jesus' response? In verse 23, Jesus says, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Now, you might take that scripture and think, oh, well, this is all right. This is what Mike's going to talk about today. Everything is possible for one who believes. That's not actually what we're going to talk about today. I think the key in this passage that we see is that, yes, our faith is what makes it possible for us to recognize God's work in our lives. But it is not our faith that heals. It is not our faith that can miraculously change things. That would mean that we have the power. And I want us to all understand this very clearly. We are not the ones who have the power. God has the power. Our faith opens up our eyes so that we can see what God is doing. So at last, we come to today's prayer. This is verse 24, and I want you to underline this in your outlines. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And you might think, Mike, that's a, is that even a prayer? Does that count? That doesn't seem very spiritual. I do believe. Help me overcome my belief. Wait a minute, Mike. I came to this one prayer series because I wanted to hear a long, eloquent prayer. But I challenge that, and I want to say that I believe that the truest prayers that come from our heart are the most raw. They are the ones where we are in desperation on our knees saying, Jesus, please. You've probably all been to a Thanksgiving dinner where you have that one uncle who says, I'll say grace. And you're waiting to eat and your food is getting cold and the mashed potatoes are starting to get a little bit hard. That's no good. And so you've got, you're holding hands and your eyes are closed, but you're kind of looking over and you're just like, okay, God, thank you for the food. Amen. And instead, oh Lord, creator of the universe. We humbly beseech thee to grant thy divine blessings upon this dead turkey. You know, and it's like, come on. Why do we think that somehow our eloquent prayers get God's attention any more than the raw gut reaction of what's going on inside? Because our Father knows our hearts. Jesus told us, God knows what you need before you ask for it. And so, in this prayer, this man is saying, I do believe, but yet I don't believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. 
might say, well, Mike, that's, that's your prayer? That's the one you picked? Listen, for this pastor, that prayer is one of the most comforting prayers in the entire Bible. And I will tell you, I know that you understand, that you believe that for pastors, because we have this direct connection to God, actually, I'm the guy down here, uh, we have this direct connection to God, and we think, and, and you might think that for us, life is all sunshine and rainbows and unicorns. And, and that's true for Dwayne, but for the rest of us, for the rest of us, there are challenges. And I'm here to tell you that just like you, we as pastors, human beings, we go through seasons of suffering and of pain. And sometimes, and this is a very theologically accurate statement, sometimes life sucks. And you might think, wait a minute, Mike, you're a pastor. You can't say sucks. Well, I want you to consider it theologically. I'm talking about the vacuum that is created when our faith is, is low. So see, it's how it's sucked out, right? Yeah. All right. Just making sure you're still with me. I don't want anybody to be offended. Now, maybe you are that rare person who genuinely finds belief easy. It seems that some people do. In fact, in 2007, a neuroscientist named Dr. Andrew Newberg wrote a book called Why We Believe What We Believe. And in that book, he actually postulates that maybe some of us in our brains are actually hardwired for faith. And it comes easier for some of us. I don't know if that's true, if some of us just naturally believe, while others maybe naturally do not believe. I'm not sure, but let me put it another way. Some people are probably thinking this is the end of the world. That's true. Do you think it could be? Yes. How can you say that? That wasn't the answer you wanted. Couldn't you pretend to be like you used to be? (sighs) Give me some comfort. something lucky group number one sees it as more than luck more than coincidence they see it as a sign evidence that there is someone up there watching out for them group number two sees it as just pure luck a happy turn of chance I'm sure the people in group number two are looking at those 14 lights in a very suspicious way For them, this situation is a 50-50. Could be bad. Could be good. But deep down, they feel that whatever happens, they're on their own. And that fills them with fear. Yeah, there are those people. But there's a whole lot of people in the group number one they see those 14 lights they're looking at a miracle and deep down they feel that whatever's going to happen there'll be someone there to help them and that fills them with hope see what you have to ask yourself is what kind of person are you are you 
sees signs, sees miracles? Or do you believe that people just get lucky? Or look at the question this way. Is it possible that there are no coincidences? Is it possible that there are no coincidences? That we are not alone? Now, right now, you might be saying, hey, I saw that movie. What, what kind of pastor are you? Like, you're using scenes from a scary movie. <laughs> Signs by M. Night Shyamalan. It's a fantastic movie, highly recommended, because it's a powerful movie about faith. And if you notice, Mel Gibson's character is the one who knows the right things to say but doesn't believe it himself anymore. And it's because he is a minister in the movie who has since left ministry because his wife died in a car accident. And that's why his younger brother, played by Joaquin Phoenix, asks him, can't you just talk like you used to and give me some hope? And so he says, the world kind of breaks down into two people, two types of people, those who believe or those who feel alone. It seems like it would be so much more comforting to believe. So then why is belief so hard? Please write that down if you're following along in your outline. Why is belief so hard? Make no mistake, for many people, it is hard. 20th century American essayist and fierce Catholic, Flannery O'Connor, she once wrote, I think there's no suffering greater than what is caused by the doubts of those who want to believe. I know what torment this is, but I can only see it in myself anyway as the process by which faith is deepened. I think those are wise words. What she's saying is that, yes, we go through doubts. We have seasons where we say, I want to believe, but I just can't right now. But it's in those seasons that we grow. Like in in exercise, in working out, we have to break down the muscle before we can build it up. And that's what's happening here when we go through seasons of doubt. She goes on to say, what people don't realize is how much it costs. They think faith is, is a big electric blanket, when, of course, it is the cross. It is much harder to believe than not to believe. Please underline that on your outline. It's a great quote. It is much harder to believe than not to believe. If you feel you can't believe, you must at least do this. Keep an open mind. Keep it open toward faith. Keep wanting it. Keep asking for it and leave the rest to God. It is harder to believe than not to, everyone. If it was easier to believe, there would be so much more faith in the world. But it's hard. And I think there are two big reasons. Let's talk about this for a few minutes. Here's reason number one. Please write it down. Reason number one, fear. Our first barrier to belief is simply the fear. The fear of being let down. We don't want to blindly trust a God who actually might not even be there, do we? And yet, I'm not convinced that that's the real fear. Mm -mm. I think the real fear might be, yeah, God, he's there. He does exist. But maybe, just maybe, he doesn't love me. I mean, after all, even the disciples doubted Christ's love in the midst of the storm. 
Do you remember in Mark chapter 4, verses 37 through 38? A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? They didn't say, Oh God, creator of the universe, dost thou have the power to calmeth this storm? That's not what they prayed. They said, don't you care if we drown? Again, raw, real praying. They weren't questioning the existence of God. They weren't questioning the power of God. They were questioning, does God care? Now, if you're a person of faith, have you ever gone through a time when you've counseled others, you've said, God loves you. The Lord's love is unconditional. God will always be there for you. And we we tell people how much God loves them and how they can never do anything that will make God stop loving them. And yet we don't believe it for ourselves. We convince ourselves very irrational. We convince ourselves somehow God loves everybody except me. I've done too much. Friends, please. Come on. You really think that? Look at the people in the Bible that God saves. Look at the Apostle Paul and all the evil that he did, and God still rescues him. And yet, in the midst of that irrational belief that somehow God loves everybody but me, we still struggle. I think perhaps it's our own insecurities mistakenly projected onto the author of love, the one who created love. And that's what prevents us from believing. That's the fear. After all, didn't he love us enough to make the ultimate sacrifice, as we know from the most well-known passage in the Bible? You know, this afternoon when you go home and you turn on football, because Sunday is the Lord's Day for football. And when you go home and you put on football and they go to kick a field goal, I'm very disappointed right now because I was, I was all the way rooting for the Cowboys because my friend Joe Looney plays for the Cowboys, and I was very disappointed last week. But, um, you know, when they, when they go to kick the field goal, you see the net come up, and what do you always see? Besides, you know, you see the Allstate, the good hands. Ha ha, we get it. Somebody always holds up a sign. This is John 3.16, probably the most famous passage in the Bible. And what does John 3.16 tell us? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now that's printed in your outline, and I want to ask you to circle two words, loved and world. Everybody, even you. God loves everyone. He sent Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, to die for everyone. And all we have to do is believe put our faith in him, and we have eternal life, not by our faith, but by the power of God that we receive by our faith. If you're here today and you don't know what you believe, you are in a place of doubt, that's okay. I encourage you to struggle through that doubt, but know that on the other side of it, God loves you and sent his son to pay the price for you 100%. 
All you have to do is receive that gift. And if you never have, I want to challenge you now to begin considering the claims of Christ and what it really means. Because I believe it's the truth. And if you question the truth honestly, you will always find out that it is in fact the truth. So moving on. Fear is our first reason. The second reason that belief is so hard. Pride. And I think this is the more obvious barrier to belief Because it's the unwillingness to acknowledge the divine. Because when we acknowledge the divine, it means something terrifying. And this is also on your outline. When we acknowledge the divine, it means that God is God and I am not. And we have a very hard time with this, don't we? See, the necessary result of this acknowledgement is that if God is real, now I have a responsibility to him. I don't like responsibility. I like to sleep in. I like to play video games. I like to watch a lot of TV and eat junk food. I don't want responsibility. Now you're telling me I have to be responsible to a God. But if he's real, the existence of a God necessitates the worship of that God. Because by definition, a God is worthy of worship. So if God is true, we must worship him. We owe our very existence to him. Scripture tells us that at some point in the timeline, whether we like it or not, we will all acknowledge God. Because at that point, faith won't be necessary anymore because faith will be sight. Philippians 2 verses 9 to 11 tells us, Therefore, God elevated him, meaning Jesus, to the place of highest honor. And gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father that will happen. Go back through that passage and circle every time you see the word every, every, every. Every knee should bow. Every tongue declare, Jesus Christ is Lord. Can you see how this presents a problem? We're taught self-reliance. We're taught from a very young age, you go out there and you pick yourself up by your bootstraps. I don't even know what a bootstrap is. I guess if you live in snowy regions, you have to use bootstraps to pull on your boots. I don't know. I just heard that since I was a kid. You pick yourself up and you go out there. Don't be in debt to any other person. You are the captain of your destiny. You are the master of your fate. And we're taught this. Culturally, this is something we believe. We put a strong emphasis on the individual and on ourself. And yet with God in the picture, we can no longer be the main character in our story. It just doesn't work. God is the main character. And so we are now relegated to a position of worship and service of that God. And this offends us and it even angers us. The staunchest atheist is not content to argue, there is no God. No, the staunchest atheist says there's no God and I hate him. It makes no sense. But I'm sure we've all encountered that. In this discourse, they point out the flaws of the world, the problem of evil a legitimate obstacle to belief. So to overcome this obstacle, and I would like to talk about the problem of evil, but that's a whole other series of sermons. But in order to overcome this obstacle, what do we do? 
Where is the justice of God in light of human suffering, which causes so many to doubt? Well, of course, the short answer is free will. We broke the world. Now we have to live in it. But that leads us to our next question. Please write this down. You can, it's on the other side of your outline. Is God angry when we doubt? Is he angry? Well, that's a good one. See, we tend to assume that doubt is bad because doubt typically prohibits us from receiving what God has for us. In fact, Scripture says so directly. In James, it, James writes in chapter 1, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Oh, man. Here we were thinking that God is maybe okay with our doubts sometimes. And now James goes and tells us we won't expect to receive anything. Well, let's not take this scripture out of context. James is talking about asking to receive wisdom from God. And I do believe that the scripture is true. You have to believe all of it. But what he's saying is that when we doubt, we shouldn't expect to receive from God because the doubt inhibits our ability to perceive what God is giving us. So we won't receive that wisdom. But does it mean that God is afraid of our doubts somehow? If we use a broad brush and paint all doubt as bad, you know how many people in the Bible we condemn? So many of the heroes of the faith had tremendous doubts. Even modern day or more current theologians talk about struggling with doubt. Have you read the the message translation of Scripture by a guy named Eugene Peterson? Eugene Peterson once wrote, Belief in God does not exempt us from feelings of abandonment by God. Praising God does not inoculate us from doubts about God. Famous Baptist theologian Charles Spurgeon once wrote, I do not believe there ever existed a Christian yet who did not now and then doubt his interest in Jesus. I think when a man says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. And even our old friend C.S. Lewis, good old C.S. Lewis, you can't go wrong. Even the atheists have to say, yeah, I like C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis once wrote, I think the trouble with me is lack of faith. Often when I pray, I wonder if I am not posting letters to a non-existent address. These are giants of the faith who have taught so many people through the years who freely admit they struggle with doubt. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not glorifying doubt, but as someone who works with teenagers, I can tell you that we must face our doubts. We must present them to God and wrestle through them. Please write down, we must face our doubts. We can't bury them. We can't sweep them under the rug, hide them on the back shelf, put them on the back burner. We better face our doubts or they will not go away. They will come back and undermine our belief. So we have to face them head on. And that's an opportunity to grow. I often quote the statistic from the most recent surveys that say that approximately 70% of graduating high school seniors walk away from their faith during the young adult years. 
If that doesn't upset you, then there's something wrong. 70% active church-going, believing high school students. They walk away. Now, some do come back. But the Sticky Faith Initiative, started by the Fuller Youth Institute in Pasadena, did some studies and found out that the students that were more likely to hold on to their faith were those who were allowed to wrestle with their doubts. Those who weren't told, shh, don't doubt, shh, don't have doubts, just sweep them under the rug, don't, just don't talk about doubts. And that's why, here's my shameless plug, that's why our students need us to listen while they go through their crisis of faith. That's why we need more of you to become volunteers in our high school ministry. Just let that sink in for a minute. Because these kids need people who have gone through that crisis of faith, who freely admit that they struggle with doubt, to listen and to be mentors for them. We must face our doubts head on. And guess what? God is not afraid of our doubts. God is not afraid of our doubts. Have you ever read the book Job? Oh, it's a good book. It's one of the oldest books, actually, in the Old Testament. And it's a story of a man who was righteous, upright before God. And then a lot happens sort of behind the curtain, behind the supernatural realm. And, and Satan comes in, the accuser, and he's talking to God. And he says, well, you protect this Job guy. That's why he believes in you. But, you know, if his life is bad, he'll curse you to your face. So God says, okay, you can, you can make his life bad. So Job loses everything. All of his wealth, all of his kids, all of his camels, but he gets to keep his wife. I'm not sure what that means. I'm just reading the scriptures, folks. And so, what happens throughout the book? Well, spoiler alert, Job doesn't curse God, but he's mad. Job is angry at God. And the bulk of the book is Job shaking his fist and saying, this is unjust. I don't deserve this. And Job's friends come in and they say, Job, you're just a sinner and you need to accept this punishment from God. And Job says, I'm not. I've always been faithful to God. Maybe not perfect, but I follow him and I serve him and I'll keep serving him. But I'm mad. So then what happens at the end of the book? Well, God shows up. He shows up in a storm. And he reminds Job and his friends how powerful he is. He says, Job, can you create the earth? Can you do all these magnificent things? Can you tame wild beasts? Can you plumb the depths of the ocean? Can you do all that stuff, Job? No, I didn't think so. Because I'm God and you're not. And Job responds, you're right, you're God, and I'm not. And so then what does God do to Job for all of his doubt and his anger? Does he smiteth him greatly? Does he rain fire from heaven? Let's see. Job 42, 12, the first half. Oh, so the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than in the beginning. He gets everything back and more. God didn't run away from Job's doubt. Now, what's the message for us? It's okay to argue with God. 
It's okay to shake your fist and say, God, I'm mad at you and I want to have an argument with you. You're not going to win. You will not win the argument. But it's through that struggle that your relationship with God is refined and strengthened. God will go down on the mat with you. Do you not remember with Jacob? God became human and wrestled with Jacob all night long. I love telling that story. Why? Because I'm a wrestler. But also because wrestling is the only sport which God himself participates in. But also, but also because it shows that God is not afraid to struggle with us. After the match, God changes Jacob's name to what? Israel. What does Israel mean? Struggles with God. We can struggle with God. He won't run away scared. He loves us. All right, let's finish up. Here's the practical application today. Please write this down. Belief is challenging, but God is faithful. God is faithful. Belief is hard. It requires this scrappy resolve and this perseverance that we have to hang on while it seems like Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat on a pillow. Belief is uncomfortable. And yet we're sacrificed. We call the sacrifice for what we like, what's comfortable, for what is best and for what we truly love. For loving Christ and loving others and living life on purpose. Why? Because it's worth it. We follow a God who is present with us in the real world. Do you remember the movie Aladdin, you know, with the big blue genie? I tell my students this all the time. That's not God. God is not a genie to grant your wishes. Our prayers are not cosmic quarters that go in a gumball machine and he has to produce what we ask. Our God, when we put our faith in Christ, God doesn't say, oh, let me run along ahead of you and move every obstacle out of your way. No. He does not tell us that. And if anybody tells you that's what faith is like, they're trying to sell you something. That is not God. No, what God says is I will stick with you while you go through those hard times. For those who put their trust in God, we read in Hebrews 13, 5, where God says, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So today's prayer is legitimate. We're praying for God to increase our faith even though life is still painful. And so what does belief look like in the midst of our doubt? Please write this down. Belief looks like action. Even when we feel like we can't go on because we have so much doubt, we still act upon it. Even Thomas who is criticized, the disciple Thomas, as doubting Thomas. When the other disciples, when Jesus said, let's go back to to Judea so I can raise Lazarus from the dead, the disciples said, you can't go there. They want to stone you. And what did doubting Thomas say? He said, let's go to and die with Jesus. That's in John 11, 16. Yeah, you can call him the doubter. But he still had the actions to back it up. You see, faith without action is dead, as we read in James chapter 2. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, 
how can you show me your faith if you don't have any good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You see, our faith isn't what, isn't what makes us good. We are good in response to God's love. And so the actions that we do, even in the midst of our doubts, that is the proper response to unbelief. It's what we do. Let me illustrate it this way. I'm going to close with this story. On August 17, 1859, a man named Jean-Francois Gravelet, also known as Blondin the Great, stretched a tightrope from the Canadian to the American side of Niagara Falls. And he walked across that tightrope to the amazement of crowds and crowds of people. And when he got to the other side, he stepped off the tightrope onto the ground and he said, I am Blondin. Do you believe in me? And the people said, we believe, we believe. In fact, let's, let's practice that right now. I am Blondin. Do you believe in me? We believe, we believe. Okay, good. Just making sure you're there. <clears throat> he said, I am going back across that tightrope. Do you believe in me? We believe, we believe. When I go back across that tightrope, I'm going to carry a person on my shoulders. I am blonde. And do you believe in me? We believe, we believe. Who will be that person? (laughs) Silence. Finally, one man, this is a true story. One man stood up. It was his manager. He saw a good thing going bad. So he said, I'll do it. Got on his shoulders and went back across. Sure did. This is a true story. So my question to you is, do you believe? What does belief really look like, even when it's mixed with doubt? It looks like we follow in spite of our doubt. We pray the prayer, help me overcome my unbelief. And we may not want to, but may we always want to want to. We're going to pray now for our offering. If you're a guest here, I want to remind you, please don't feel any pressure to give financially. We want this service to be a gift to you. And for everyone, we ask that you do place in your communication card as the basket goes by. And now let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us the power to believe even in spite of our doubts. May we always be able to say we still believe and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.